I expect that, uh, you know, most of the people who encountered Jesus in the course of his public ministry uh, may have known that he was very special, uh, particularly those who'd been healed by him. Uh, they experienced his power uh, close up and at first hand, uh, although, of course, not uniquely. Uh, there were plenty of other miracle workers going around at the time, some of whom we meet in the Acts of the Apostles, and not only not uniquely, but not permanently. Uh, sooner or later, uh, even the people that Jesus healed um, got sick and died, just like the rest of us. But for most people, including maybe even the disciples, Jesus would have been actually pretty ordinary. He ate and drank and toileted and slept just like anyone else. He laughed and cried and got angry and got tired and walked and talked in an entirely recognisable way. Now, despite this, uh, Peter's confession of Jesus uh, indicates that he had understood what, uh, who Jesus was. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, just before the reading that we had, uh, Peter says, in response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then it all goes pear-shaped. Actually, it was, it was looking pretty good for a while. But then Jesus spoils it all by getting all negative and pessimistic. Verse 21, from that time on, from that moment on, you see, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Now, if you, if you read that, the narrative back in Matthew chapter 16, you'll see this is not to Peter's liking at all. In fact, as far as he was concerned, uh, this is exactly the opposite of the way things work out for a Messiah. And, um, and so he decides that Jesus needs a bit of um, you know, encouragement. You know those, those moments when someone's a bit sad, so what you decide to do is be happy with them? Uh, that never works, by the way. Uh, when someone's sad, don't be happy with them. And so Peter tries it. He says, come on, Jesus, buck up. Stay positive. And Jesus, in response, is firm to the point of being fierce. He says, get behind me, Satan. It's astonishing. Peter has no idea, Jesus is saying, about the way God does things. All he can see are human things, earthly methods, unworthy means. No, Jesus knows that the path of the Messiah is through the valley of the shadow of death all the way into the darkness. And the very next thing that happens in the midst of all the gloom and darkness of Jerusalem with suffering and persecution and death, the very next thing that happens is that Jesus takes this same Peter along with the other two of Jesus' inner circle, James and John, up for a mountaintop experience. Where they get to see behind all the appearances, all the confusion to what is really there, where the curtain is pulled back and light and clarity shine for just a moment. And we see the truth about destiny, about mission, and about pattern. Chapter 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up 
a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, uh, you know that um, big things happen on mountains in the Bible, right? That is sort of, uh, this is, you don't have to be a very great Bible student to know this. Big things happen uh, in mountains on the Bible. Moses uh, met God on Mount Sinai uh, amidst the cloud and the thunder and the glory. Uh, Elijah battled with the false prophets of Baal, where? On Mount Carmel, on a mountaintop. Jesus was crucified on, guess what? A hill outside Jerusalem the place of the skull. And as we'll see, all three of those other places are relevant to this mountaintop experience. Now, what's, what's happening here on the mountain? Well, this mountaintop experience is, I think, just pretty freaky, actually. Jesus is transfigured. Now, that's the word that we use literally in the original language. Uh, the word is metamorphosed. He's his morph, his form, is meted, changed. He's changed in his form, in his appearance. And his true colours are revealed. That's the point, right? His true colours are revealed and they are the colours of glory. His face shone like the sun. His clothes become dazzling white. He's joined in some way. I mean, who knows quite how this works? Uh, I guess, I guess the, the embodied or the... Or the displayed form of the spirit perhaps or the ghost maybe of um, Elijah and Moses the two central heroes of Hebrew history Moses the giver of the law Elijah the greatest of the prophets what's happening with this transfiguration well on the one hand you might say that this is the demonstration of the divinity of Jesus uh, that as he's transfigured, what we see is that he shares the divine glory of God. And of course, there's something in that. It's true, absolutely, fundamentally, foundationally true, that Jesus Christ is divine, one from all eternity with the Father. As we confess in the creed, God from God. He's God. He's light from light. He's true God from true God. He's begotten. He's not made. He's not a creature. He didn't have a start and an end like other creations do. And actually the gospel, the whole Christian message depends on this reality. If Jesus was not fully and truly God, then you have someone who pretends to be your saviour who is not up to the task. Oh no, everything depends on Jesus being divine. All of that is true, but I'm not sure it's quite the main point here actually. And for two reasons. Uh, the first is that in Luke's account of this transfiguration, this metamorphosis, uh, Moses and Elijah are shining in glory as well, actually. And um, the one thing we know about Moses and Elijah, oh, no, you know, they were very great. Very, very, very great. But they're not divine. But more importantly, Jesus has actually already talked about exactly this kind of thing that's happening there on the mountaintop. Back in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 43, when Jesus is teaching about the great separation that the Son of Man brings to the wheat and the weeds, 
He says that, that all the weeds, what he describes as the causes of sin and all evildoers, will be condemned. That is, all the bad stuff that happens in this world will be put away, gotten rid of. That's hope, right? That's what we all yearn for, justice, shalom, peace. And at the same time, the righteous, that is those who belong to God, have aligned themselves with God, the righteous will, and listen to this, they will, quote, shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's the promise that Jesus makes for everyone who believes in him who aligns themselves, body, soul, mind and spirit with him to shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Those who hear the words of Jesus and understands them and bears fruit for God. In other words, what I think we're seeing on the mountaintop here is not primarily a revelation of the divinity of Jesus, although, as I've said, that's absolutely foundationally true and real. It's actually a revelation of the humanity of Jesus. Or, or perhaps more accurately to say, it's the revelation of the humanity of Jesus and of all people who will be taken up to glory in the kingdom of God. It's very interesting. This week I visited a, a member of our 8 o'clock congregation who's dying. He's in hospital. Uh, he's in his last weeks if not last days and I don't know if you've seen a person who's at that point of death uh, he, when I visited him he could barely comprehend that I was there it, it's very interesting um, actually saying some of the prayers that we prayed tonight and will pray tonight uh, prayers that he's been praying just in and out of his his life uh, week by week by week in that same exact rhythm and pattern for decades they were the bits that he recognized when I said hello and introduced myself he kind of, who, who, who are you but when we prayed those prayers the Lord you know that he knew. And I don't know if you've seen a dying person. It's, it's a really distressing sight. Everything about his body is just kind of decaying or bloated or discoloured. Uh, his face is just completely sunken and shriveled. Uh, his, his, his mind, his, his ability to control his bodily functions is gone. Uh, his, his mind is deteriorated terribly. He's in and out of consciousness. And, and you look at a person like that and you think, um, this is why we don't, right, by the way. This is why we tend to put them away and hope that they, we don't see them. But you look at a person like that and you go, is that my destiny? Is that how it ends up for all of us? In the words of dead poets society, that we're all just food for worms, boys. And Jesus says, no. No, what you see in him, transfigured so that he shines like the sun because he's in the kingdom of his father. Jesus says, this is your destiny. This. Not to fade and decay and become corrupted and end. But this, the humanity that God created us for, designed us for in the beginning to walk and talk with him in open, beautiful, intimate fellowship. 
And precisely because this is God's intent in creation, this will be what he fulfills in redemption in Jesus Christ. Do you see how this is so immediately relevant to every one of us as we experience more or less the brokenness of this world, of the gradual decline and and actually the realisation that we're never going to be quite as great as we thought we would. Uh, You don't know that yet. I know you don't know that yet, that's okay. You still think that, but I'm 51. And all the sorts of things that I thought I'd do in my life, I get now that it doesn't work out like that mostly. And that I'm just on the downward slope right now. After a round of golf, I can barely stand up. It's just, it's ridiculous. But this is my destiny. Not to gradually get more and more pathetic, but to shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Which leads to the second point. You see, how do you get there from here? How do you get there from here? Because the one thing that's perfectly obvious about this world, the one thing that's perfectly obvious about you and I, is that we are not terribly glorious. We are not really fit for purpose. And this is a problem. Because it's a a commonplace, it's just sort of taken for granted in the Bible that no one can come into the presence of the glorious, holy God and live if you're an inglorious, sinful person. Certainly Moses knew that all too well. It had to be hidden, protected from the glory of God. You remember back in Exodus chapter 34. The glory of God, you see, is too heavy for us, too intense, so that when it comes into contact with inglorious, feeble, broken, sinning creatures, instead of enhancing them, it crushes them. Uh, Literally, the word for glory uh, just means weightiness, and I don't know if if you've ever had a great, anything large descend upon you. Um, When my uh, wife was a little girl, she had a brother, uh, and um, he was a, a big hulking sort of teenager, and they had a black dachshund, you know those little silly sausage dogs? And they had a black beanbag. And at one point the black dachshund was sitting, lying asleep in the black beanbag, and just not easy to see. And so the big hulking brother took a flying leap and landed on the beanbag. Except what was in the beanbag? the squidgy little dachshund. And this 103-kilo behemoth, in all his glory, landed on the dog. And I'm not going to tell you what happened. <laughs> glory crushes what's not fit for purpose. Uh, let me give you another example. If you, I don't, you, when you're early on, um, your parents will always teach you, don't look at the sun. Don't look at the sun. Whatever you do, don't look at the sun because the sun is too glorious for us. If you look at the sun, its intensity will burn you out. You're not made of stern enough stuff to handle the glory of the sun. And actually this is true at a a personal and emotional level. You, You might think that you're reasonably intelligent, you might think that you're reasonably kind as a person until you come into the presence of someone who really actually is super smart. Or until you come to the presence of someone who really actually is genuinely sacrificially kind. 
You come to the presence of this sort of limited human glory and you realise just how kind of dumb and feeble and half-baked you really are. And it's not an inspiring experience, actually, to come into the presence even of human glory. It's a crushing one. Now, interestingly, uh, the disciples, or at least Peter, are not completely awestruck at the point of transfiguration itself. There's another reason why I think the transfiguration is a, a depiction of human destiny rather than the divine glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter, in characteristic fashion, on the contrary, blurts out that he will set up a couple of tents. I mean, there's always one of those comic moments uh, in the Gospels. Uh, perhaps to encourage the trio to stay. You know what it's like when you're sort of in a really good moment at a party, you just kind of want it to keep going. And Peter says, why don't I get a couple of deck chairs and, uh, and we can all sit down and, just, and, you, th- and we, you can keep going. And actually, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Wouldn't you want to do a similar thing if you had the chance to enjoy afternoon tea with Moses? Right? Because I've got plenty of questions for Moses. Like, tell me what it was really like up there on the mountaintop with God. Or, were you actually thinking about it when you smashed the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. I mean, what were you thinking? What, did, didn't you even wonder what the heritage people would say about that? Now, it's only when God himself appears on the scene that the disciples get really, really, really afraid. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were crushed. They were overcome by fear. See, this is the crucial moment, the glory cloud, the glory cloud that is the way God always appears on mountaintops. The glory cloud envelops them all and the disciples know perfectly well that they are not fit for purpose. They cannot handle the glory of God. They can't stand in the presence of his glory. Our being can't bear his being and so they go from bravado to terror. They fall to the ground, they're overcome by fear, and rightly so, they're sinners. They have no place standing on this holy ground. They know that they're going to die. But the most incredible thing about this entire episode, actually, is what happens next. Um, You see, it's what doesn't happen. They don't die. The glory of God descends upon them at the mountain and envelops them and they don't die. How can that be? Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Here's what gets us from our inglorious, sinning state 
to be fit for glory. Jesus touches them. Perhaps the sense here is that he takes them by the hand and he brings them to their feet. And that's the point, you see. His touch is what sinful human beings desperately need to make them fit for God. There is no other way to survive his glory, his presence. Jesus has just said, remember, at the end of chapter 16, that the path that he must tread is the way of the cross. And it's time to kind of bring that in now. You see, this scene at the transfiguration offers a really significant parallel and contrast to the crucifixion scene that's going to take place in just a little while. I mean, just let me lay this out for you a bit. Here on the mountain, Jesus is revealed in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem, Jesus is revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white, specifically mentioned. There they are stripped off. The soldiers have gambled for them. Here he is flanked by two people, Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes. There he is flanked by two people, two terrorists, two insurgents. Here a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There, do you remember? Darkness comes over the whole land. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There, he is in hiding, in shame, after denying that he even knows who Jesus is. Here, a voice from God himself declares that this is his wonderful, beloved son. There, a pagan soldier declares in surprise that this really was God's son. Do you see what's going on? The, the mountaintop explains the hilltop and the hilltop explains the mountaintop. On the hilltop of Calvary, Jesus dies. But you see, it's more than that. On the hilltop of Calvary, Jesus loses his glory. The one who's in very nature God is emptied to death, even death on a cross. He loses his beauty, his invulnerability, his power, his immensity. It is set aside. Jesus bears in himself for us the destructive weight of the glory of God upon him stripped of his own glory so that we inglorious sinners like Peter and James and John and you and I can stand in the glory of God and live. And not just live, but actually be transformed into it. You only really understand either the mountaintop here or the hilltop then in the light of each other side by side Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one truly anointed Son of God who will save his people and bring them to their destiny, shining like the sun, which is precisely why his mission must be to lose his glory, 
to go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering and be killed and on the third day rise again. Which leads to the third point. So must we. But Jesus came, uh, verse 7, and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Uh, It's kind of simple, really. In fact, in some ways, it's a bit too simple sometimes for us complicated and sophisticated people. We have so many questions. We have so much confusion. We have such deep challenges in our lives, often decisions and relationships and work and ultimately death. We live in a complicated world. Mind you, it's not exactly like the disciples, those first disciples of Jesus, were in any really different boat. They'd left everything for Jesus. They knew enough to know that where the master is, there's every likelihood that the disciples would be too. And he's just talked about going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying. And the living and true God, the creator and sustainer of all there is, says in a way that just cuts through all the confusion, that cuts through all the complexity. He says, do you want to know how to navigate your way through life? Do you want to know how to navigate your way through death, like Don is doing right now? Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Uh, one of the prayers that uh, we pray from the prayer book, but it's not for tonight, it's a different Sunday, puts it like this. It says, um, read, mark, that means take note of, learn, and inwardly digest the words of Jesus Christ given to us in Holy Scripture. No, not just read but take them into yourself and let them become part of your soul. Digest them like the way you digest food so that it becomes you. Listen to him, says God. If you want to have any hope of navigating your way through life and death successfully, listen to him. That encouraged and supported by his words, we may always hold fast, the prayer goes on, to the joyful hope of everlasting life. And of course, when the Bible uses the word listen or hear, uh, it doesn't mean listen the way we listen to the safety announcement on an aeroplane. You know, you know that safety announcement? I, don't you feel sorry for those poor uh, flight attendants? They, they stand out there and they know that precisely no one gives a toss what they're saying right there and there. And I, every now and again, I try and look at them just to encourage them. But actually, I'm not listening either. I'm just pretending. No one listens to them, even if they hear the words, because they turn off the TV, you know. No, no, not that kind of listening. Listen, which means take deep into your heart and mind and soul and strength to obey. Because if Jesus Christ really is our destiny, and if he really is the one who bears the destructive weight of the glory of God upon him for us, and rises in that glory. If that's who Jesus is, then there can't be a part-time, half-strength kind of thing being a disciple of his. That's not going to work. He's not interested, actually. 
So many people try and kind of live in the middle, a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of themselves and a little bit of the world and just little bits of everything because after all, we don't want extremism, right? Jesus says nonsense. There's no integrity in that. It's an all or nothing thing with the transfigured Jesus. And that includes even in the really hard times, the times of pain and darkness, the times that are the opposite of glory, the times when what Jesus calls you to do is to make a decision or to cut a relationship or to choose a way that feels absolutely nuts. Nuts. Because even in those times, we can do what the Father says and listen to Jesus with patience. Patience because there is more to come. There is transfigured glory when you'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. It's really interesting, isn't it? Um, The curtain is taken back just a little bit on the mountaintop, but otherwise you may well not know who Jesus is. Because his glory is actually at work in his hiddenness. That cross, which for all the world looks like defeat and shame, is in fact the greatest moment of the power and triumph of God and truth and righteousness that there has ever been. His glory is at work in his hiddenness, in the darkness. And that means that in our darkness, in our hard moments, when we're experiencing suffering or pain, when we've got to make a decision that just seems crazy, God's glory can be at work there as well. We can be patient, you see. We can actually have the resources to handle suffering without letting it turn us into a bitter, inward person. Because there's more to life than is meeting the eye, just like for Jesus. There is transfiguration to come. All right, let's draw these threads together. Uh, I guess uh, it's kind of obvious, but sometimes the thing that's obvious needs saying. And the first challenge that this incident brings to us is this. It's to make sure that you have seen truly who Jesus is. Uh, One author uh, put it in a kind of understated way, uh, saying Jesus is more than a carpenter. Uh, For that matter, Jesus is more than a great moral teacher. Uh, He's more than a towering leader or a great example. No, see Jesus for who he is. You've had the curtain just taken back just for a fraction of a moment here. See him. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Make sure you see him as that. And, And even as we come to pray in a moment, it may be that for the first time with any kind of real commitment and substance in your heart, you may actually say yes to Jesus without qualification. That all the sort of yes buts that you've had, because you haven't really seen him for who he is, fall away. And that tonight becomes a moment when you drop the butt and it's just yes, because you see him. But second, notice that um, there's, there's more even 
to seeing him, we're to listen to him. And the, the thing that Jesus says to which we are to listen, the instruction that he gives, which God himself says we're to pay attention to, that the thing which is between the confession of Peter and the transfiguration, right, is this invitation of Jesus. Ready? Uh, you, actually, now would be a good time to need to go to the bathroom because you, you, know, you don't want to hear this. But you're not going, so listen. Then Jesus told his disciples, ready? If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Here is what Jesus says. Specifically, pointedly, appallingly. Here is what Jesus says that God tells those first three disciples and us disciples gathered here this evening to listen to. That the only way of discipleship, the only way to be connected, to be actually on the path towards this destiny, to shine like the sun, is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. Just as the only way for Jesus to be the Messiah was to deny himself and to take up his cross. And, and Jesus gives a reason. It's such a, such a fascinating, deep insight into reality. You see, there's something fundamentally gracious, Jesus says, about the nature of reality. Contrary to all appearances, precisely because God is at the heart of reality and God is a God of grace. And what that means is that if you don't yourself live that kind of life of grace, putting others first, of serving others ahead of yourself, of expending your resources on others more than on yourself, then, then you're not in touch with God. As Jesus puts it, it's just a fact that if you try and save your life, if you try and hold on to it and protect it and guard it and build it up in your own sort of little ways and, and just keep seeking and serving your own pleasure and convenience and comfort, and if that's what you do, then guess what? You will lose your life. You won't reach your destiny. You will never shine like the sun because you're not bright enough for it. That's just a kind of inward shriveled thing. Now it's those who lose their lives who just again and again and again, and at the end of their strength again, pour themselves out for God and for others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Precisely because you know that Jesus has borne the crushing glory of God for you. Your soul is filled with hope and joy and confidence. If you lose your life for Jesus, then you'll save it. So let me close by getting a little pointed. 
Um, where is the challenge of discipleship for you right now? Where is the challenge of denying yourself this week or this month? Where is the cross for you to take up yourself? Where is it that you've just, you see it, you know it, it's lying there and you just can't summon it up and you're avoiding it and you kind of avoid thinking about it and you avoid talking about it, you make sure that when it gets close in conversation you just steer it away so that no one can actually call you on it. Where is the cross for you to take up? Where do you need the spiritual power of grasping in your heart that Jesus has gone all the way into dissolution under the weight of the glory of God so that you can stand in the presence of the glory of God? To take that deeper into you. At a personal level, is it some sin to which you're hanging on? A delight that feeds the dark side of your desires, a grudge that you carefully nurse, an unreconciled relationship that you just leave, or even just a spiritual temperature which says, I'm very keen on Jesus occasionally. Occasionally. You see, sometimes letting go of those things that will feel like a little death, won't it? That will feel like a little death. A genuine cross-like experience. But that's okay. Because in that moment, listen to him. Listen to him. Because he calls us to take up our cross and to deny ourselves and to follow him. Because as you move into death, as you lose your life for his sake and for the gospel's sake, know, know that you will save it. Let's pray.